You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with the Commonwealth Club and Inforum. My name is Lara Bazelon. I'm a law professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and I'm very excited to be in conversation with Sam Harris today. First, we want to thank all of our Commonwealth Club members, donors, and supporters because you make all of this possible. So we're so grateful for your support, and we hope that other people will follow your example and support the club during these uncertain times. As I said, I'm joined today by Sam Harris, who is the host of the very popular podcast, Making Sense with Sam Harris. And he's the author of a new book, Making Sense, Conversations on Consciousness, Morality, and the Future of Humanity. Every week on Making Sense, Sam and his guests analyze the human mind, and they offer their takes on society and on current events. This book shares 12 of Sam's favorite conversations from his Making Sense podcast, and they're meant to really push traditional topics in unconventional directions. Sam Harris is a believer that conversation is our path to survival, no matter how difficult or controversial the conversation is, that it's really our only way through all of this. So Sam and I will be talking about many of the topics in his book and other topics as well, and I want to hear questions from you and take questions from you. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we will be getting to them later in the program. And thank you so much, Sam Harris, for joining us. Hey, Laura. Pleasure. Thanks for doing this. So I'm going to dive right in. And I wanted to talk to you about a podcast that's not featured in your book, I think probably because it's so recent. You recorded it over the summer, and it's called Can We Pull Back from the Brink? And you start the podcast by saying that you want to address the political and social ramifications of police violence and racism. And you say, and this is kind of your thing, I think, that conversation is all we have. And without conversation, we have violence. And yet in the podcast, you express real concern about whether an honest and thoughtful conversation about police violence and racism is even possible and that you're trying to have one in your podcast is even potentially dangerous. So I wanted to ask you, why did you say that? And what what is it that you feel about the dangerousness part? Well, it's just such a polarizing issue. I mean, it really is the the radioactive issue of the moment. I mean, there's a, there's a few others in, in line right after that, but I, I think it's probably the worst one, and uh, certainly in, in, in the U.S., um, which is to say it is the most difficult to talk about in a dispassionate way that remains sensitive to facts that doesn't demonize those who, who disagree with you or seem to disagree with you, uh, that you know, extends a principle of charity to their arguments such that you're actually dealing with their arguments and not some straw man version of it. So it is the topic on which I find our conversation breaking down uh, in a way that's almost guaranteed. I mean, it's just you, what you see, especially as gets amplified on social media, it's just one funhouse mirror, you know, set against another. And uh, it's producing, you know, I mean, unfortunately, you know, up until very recently, many of us could take refuge in a nostrum like, you know, Twitter isn't real life. But more and more, it, it feels like Twitter really is determining what happens in the real world. And, 
you know, as we know, just by, by network dynamics, in a space like Twitter, you can have extreme views that get amplified and capture the, the totality or seem to capture the totality of a conversation such that they silence the majority of opinion on, on any given topic. And I think that, so what we're hap- what we've built for ourselves is a kind of psychological experiment where we uh, have created tools that amp- you select for misinformation, select for outrage, and empower the, uh, the most uh, extreme views on any topic, this, this included, uh, and make them seem perhaps more representative than they are, but then that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because they wind up silencing you know, the majority sane, commonsensical opinion on, on, on any topic, really. So I guess I wanted to follow up on that in a couple of ways. One, to ask you whether you agree with Barry Weiss's statement when she resigned from the New York Times and she said, Twitter isn't on the masthead, but Twitter is the editor. And do you feel like Twitter has kind of taken on that role in media and social discourse? And then kind of related to that, whether you agree or disagree with that statement, you are choosing to engage. And so I'm curious in particular with respect to can we pull back from the brink what kind of trepidation you had about putting that out in the world and also what kind of a response you got? Yeah, well, I think Barry certainly has a point with respect to the Times and other uh, otherwise, you know, the, the most respected organs of journalism we still have. So you, you take the Times or the Atlantic or, you know, New York Magazine or just the Washington Post, you know, not Fox News, not MSNBC, not overtly uh, partisan sources of information, they're still captured by what happens on social media to a degree that is effectively making them, you know, outrage machines. You know, they, people are um, writing misleading headlines, it seems to me, more often. Uh, and so, you know, the, the clickbait principle is is still operative. And, and they're, you know, while they, most of those rely on subscriptions, they also rely on ads. And so they also, they really care about clicks. And, it's just it's on some level it's what you know Facebook and the rest of social media has done to the business model of, of journalism and, and and none of it's healthy right and, and so uh, yeah I, I do share Barry's concern about the Times in particular I think just what what we know what you know from what went on behind the scenes that you know that leaked out you know from Slack and elsewhere uh, there is a kind of woke moral panic that, you know, migrated from universities and now has gotten into journalism and tech and, and, you know, just corporations generally. I mean, these people graduated and they got jobs and they took their, their uh, identity politics and uh, fondness for, uh, you know, one political hysteria or another with them. And, you know, so it's, it's quite amazing what, what happens behind the scenes at the times, at least on Barry's account and on based on what has leaked out. So yeah, I'm worried that they, that, that there are too few grownups in charge. Right. And, and we're, you know, I mean, I set that line, not at age, but at a, a willingness to, again, function by certain norms of, of journalism and, and intellectual rigor that we all really rely on. I mean, just again, a principle of charity, the, the, the effort to get a person's position right before you criticize it, uh, as opposed to just sliming people with whatever you, you can imagine will stick, hoping to destroy their reputation so that no one pays attention to them, which more and more that kind of that kind of defamatory impulse, which is massively encouraged on a platform like Twitter, that has migrated into 
into you know the you know behind the the um, the mast beneath the masthead of a, of a, a publication like the Times, where you'll see takedowns of people published that are just frankly bizarre. I mean, they're not really journalistic. They're just they're just a they seem to be a kind of you know creeping extension of what's happening on social media. So on that topic, and you mentioned that it started in academia, and of course, I myself am am in academia, I wonder if we could all benefit from one of my favorite jury instructions in California, which says to the jury, if you're given two explanations, one of which is consistent with innocence and one of which is consistent with guilt, and they are equally plausible to you, you must pick the explanation that's consistent with innocence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know necessarily that we do that for each other in the same way anymore. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's a great lens through which to look at this. I would just change it. You know, when you take an, when you have two explanations, one of which is consistent with this person not being an evil maniac, you know, that's, that's the one to take at least until proven otherwise. Right. And, and so many people are looking for the possible interpretation that renders your opponent, their opponent, an evil maniac. Right. So it's like if it's possible to spin their words or frame their words or take them out of context such that this person looks like they're beyond the pale and will f- and and have you know gone so far beyond that they, they admit of no possible path of redemption. That's the framing you want to seize upon. And that's the thing you want to amplify. Uh, and that is yeah, more and more that is p- the default position in politics and in in the discussion of anything related to politics certainly discussions of race and and me too and anything else that is you know uh, you know we know is is so fraught at the moment um if you can make your opponent seem to be uh totally irredeemable anything's fair game and uh, i mean I've, de- I've dealt with so many people who you know ostensibly are journalists who f- you know, fall prey to this this uh, you know seeming imperative on their side to you know slime people at any cost. That yes, yeah, so to go back to your question, that's why I perceive this topic to be so dangerous to touch in a podcast. Even you know though the, the, the podcast offers me my own podcast offers me the 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 best possible forum because I can talk for as long as I want. I can take my foot out of my mouth if I you know put it in there, or if I you know certainly if I notice it's in there because I can edit it. It's not live, so you can be sure that whatever escaped you know, into the wild from my podcast got there because I, I wanted it there. You know, I had every, I had a second and third opportunity to decide, oh, no, I didn't say that quite right. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, you know, maliciously spun against me. But the truth is, no matter how comprehensive you are in stating a position, no matter how nuanced you are, no matter how you, how defensively you speak, it's always possible to take a snippet of something and make a person seem like they're, they're a psychopath. And, and then the people who even edit, you know, re-edit audio from my podcast to make it seem like I said the opposite of what I said in context. I mean, it's quite amazing that people do this, but people do do this. And some journalists will amplify that those, those you know, those uh, redactions. And um, even when the error is pointed out to them, they won't, you know, they won't apologize. They'll just kind of kind of move on. And so it's, we have a very dirty uh information ecosystem now that you know to say nothing of russian bots and conspiracy theories and all of the other ways in which our epistemology is breaking down there's there's just such a mess to clean up 
uh, and it may be impossible to clean it up in any comprehensive way. I think we just have to become better uh, curators of our own information. And the, you know, the principle you just just referenced would help. I mean, what we have to internalize is this skepticism around like, oh, this is just too good to be true. I know I hate Trump, but did he really say that? You know, and then you have to check and you can't just forward headlines that you like without reading the article, right? Because rather often the headline bears a, a barely a tangential relationship to the, what you can actually justify on the basis of the article. So um, yeah, we just have to get better at this. You mentioned earlier this issue of identity politics, and you've talked about how it kind of has cast a spell over everything. And going back to this, can we pull back from the brink? You say, I'm talking about race and police violence. And, you know, I could have had any number of Black intellectuals come on this podcast, including Glenn Lowry, who actually one of his conversations is is in your book. And I want to ask you about that in a minute. But then you said, I'm not going to do that because you said, quote, the color of a person's skin and even his life experiences simply don't matter for the discussion that you wanted to have. And that yeah. you go on to say that people are refusing to speak honestly about the problem of race and racism in America. So what did you mean by that? Well, so to, to the first point of the, the color of a person's skin not mattering or, or it shouldn't matter, you know, it matters for the the narrow conversation about what it's like to be a person uh, with that skin color in society. You know, if you're talking about personal experience and, you know, if you, if, you know, to take it off of race for a second, you know, if you're if we're talking about what it's like to be a very tall person, right? And you're seven feet tall and you're, and you have a story to tell about what a hassle it is on an airplane and in a normal car and, and et cetera. Right. Well then of course your, your the specific attributes of you as a person uh, and even your group membership say, you know, the, in the club of all tall people, right. Well then, then all that's you know, relevant to a certain kind of conversation and it's, you know, there's nothing wrong in referencing it. Or focusing on it, but for most of what we have to talk about, you know, what it means to have a fair society, what it means to grapple with the problem of of inequality across the board, how how we can spread opportunity around, and how we can get everyone a good education, and how and you know, uh, just how we can deal with the, the generic problem of, of of extreme partisanship and tribalism and um, and, and the part of the problem we were just referencing of just, you know, breakdown in misinformation, in information so that people won't even believe facts when you, 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 when you present them in triplicate, right. You know, the, the loss of trust in institutions, all of this, um, identity politics is a bad algorithm to run. And it's especially, especially bad a- algorithm when you look at where we want to get to. I mean, I think it's, I think it should be uncontroversial that we want to get to a future where, Super, the superficial characteristics of a person, skin color, right, uh, sex, gender identity, right, the, these these things that that are that now divide so many people from the rest of humanity. We want to get to a future where they cease to have political and moral significance, right? I mean, we, we want to, the the true overcoming of racism. To take that, you know, narrow topic now, is not a world in which more and more of us are passionate anti-racists, you know, on guard for every off-color joke and and uh, uh, the slightest symptom of, of unequal representation in society. The, the true future where we have overcome racism is a, is a future in which 
we are not fixated on race at all, right? And so the analogy I would draw here is to something like hair color, right? We, 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 we do not live in a world where people care deeply about hair color and divide themselves against the rest of the group, you know, the rest of society based on hair color. And we don't ask questions like, well, just how many redheads are employed at Google right now, right? And what does that say about, I and mean, what is their, what is the, the, the delta in their representation from their, their, you know, their representation in the population at large mean for this, for, you know, some possibility of animus, you know, against redheads at Google. No one would ever think to look at that, at those data, because we, we have a sense that we, one, we don't have a history of discrimination based on hair color, right? Um, and it would just be, but if we did, if we, if we were struggling even now to get past our hangups on hair color, right, that would be a, that would be a truly unfortunate place to be, right? I mean, that would be embarrassing. It would be ridiculous. We would want to overcome it as quickly as possible. Well, we're stuck there with respect to skin color, right? And we're stuck there with respect to religion to, for slightly different reasons. And we're, we're stuck there with, with respect to, to sex and gender, and we want to get over this. And it just seems to me patently obvious that getting over this does not entail caring more and more about these variables and defining ourselves and one another more and more in terms of these variables, right? So I just think that we, ha we have to get past our fixation on these things. And identity politics is, is not that strategy. It's, it's a way of doubling down on, on, these, on these things. Well, I'm going to push back on that a little bit and say you are envisioning, I think, something that no one could disagree with, which is kind of this utopia of race neutrality. But what we have to comprehend and reckon and deal with in this country is centuries of oppression and the fact that we brought people here from Africa and enslaved them. And that I think for many people, they're still living with that legacy, whether it's, and you pointed this out in your book, just a lack of wealth built up over generations, whether it's lack of access to education, other kinds of opportunities. And then I think for a lot of folks, it's looking, for example, at our president and the bigoted comments that he makes, or the attorney general saying there is no such thing as systemic racism in the criminal justice system when anybody who walks into any courtroom in the United States of America will tell you that that is not true. And so I guess because we're not even close to that place, how are we supposed to get there unless we do drill down on this kind of systemic entrenched inequality? Yeah, well, I think we we do need to drill down on it. But I, my main concern there is that we not find racism where it doesn't exist, right? I mean, it, it's become a almost a religious precept on the left that racism explains every disparity we might find, right? So any, any way in which you can find that life is worse for people of color, the, the only acceptable explanation for that in, in now the, the, the catechism of wokeness is either white racism, like the, the conscious attitude of, of caring less about people who are not white, um, or systemic racism, which is, which is to say some system that is is systematically biased against people of color, whether or not there are any white racists left to enforce that system, right? But it, the onus is still on the white people because they don't care enough about systemic racism to, to fix it. So uh, in either case, we're purporting to find racists everywhere, racists at the, you know, the Academy of Motion Pictures and racists in sports and racists in our elite institutions at, you know, Harvard and Yale and 
and in our journal, you know, our most esteemed scientific journals, right? Everyone is publishing a mea culpa about their own racism, right? And it has a kind of, um, it has the character of a moral panic. It, ha- I think it is across the board, uh, um, either cynical or, or a, or a product of fear, but it's, it's certainly less than rigorous and, and very often, frankly, dishonest. I mean, I think the, the, the honest thing that we have to acknowledge while talking about this is one, we've made a lot of progress, right? I mean, how could we be talking in this moment as though this is the worst moment in the, in the racial history of the United States? I mean, that, that's, that's, if you look at, if you look at the images from our streets and you look at the images from social media and you look at the, the fact that you have Hollywood celebrities essentially shooting their own hostage videos, you know, tearfully saying, I can't believe how, what an abysmal human being I am. I'm so racist. Someone come and get, perform an exorcism on me. Right. I mean, people are at, people are speaking as though in the privacy of their lives up until about five minutes ago, They've just been laughing their heads off of, about, about you know, laughing their heads off of, of, about racist jokes, right? I mean, they've just been talking like KKK members in the in the privacy of their you know, you know Hollywood mansions, and yet now when when you know the, if you shine you shine the light of of wokeness on them, now they step forward into the light of Twitter and they give you this 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 apology, right? It's it's pathetic and it's dishonest because these are some of the most liberal, least racist people on earth. They know it. We know it. Everyone knows it, right? This is this this is a. Um, I mean, on some levels, you know, and, th- and this is what worries me about it because I think it is actually doing harm to race relations in this country. My concern is that the way in which this is dishonest, the way in which this is an overreach. Uh, is somewhat analogous to what we all experienced, uh, you know, or, or those of us who are old enough experienced at the end of the OJ trial, you know, when that when that verdict came down. And we saw the uh, we saw this country on split screen, right, where all the white people in America were horrified and and an endless number, obviously not all, but an endless number of black people and people of color generally just erupted in jubilation. Right. Now, the reason why that was so damaging is because virtually everyone knew he was guilty, right? And everyone knew that everyone else knew it, right? No one thought that all of these people celebrating really thought he was innocent, right? What we were witnessing is a mass jury nullification of the country, right? We were, we were witnessing, now obviously there are some people who probably thought he was innocent and that, and you know, the, we can have our own criticism of that. But the the, the main take on this was, Okay, this was this had nothing to do with truth, right? This had nothing really to do with justice. This had this was a a, a cynical and tribal, um, uh, essentially fuck you to the rest of the nation. And you now it has a slightly different structure. It's not it wasn't exactly the same moment, but the optics of it were similar to me in that people know that this is not so much of what's being said at this moment isn't true. Right, they know that the the explanation at, at this hour for the level of murder we're going to see this week in Chicago isn't merely white racism, right? There are other problems, right? And the onus is on the black community almost entirely at this moment 
to figure out what's going on in inner city Chicago, right? And we also know that defunding the police is not a remedy for what's going on in inner city Chicago, right? Um, now, it's not to say we don't need police reform, but um, we need an intelligent discussion about the actual causes of, of, of disparities in crime and violence, say, and entanglement with the police. And so too with wealth inequality and everything else that worries us, right? We're, we're right to be worried about these things. But merely calling everyone in sight racist and admitting to, to your culpability, you know, when you're when you're, you know, a Hollywood movie star who's done nothing but but check every box on the liberal, you know, uh, scorecard for your for the last 20 years. Um, it's just it's um, it breeds a lot of cynicism. And I'm especially worried at this moment that it's going to give us four more years of Donald Trump, whatever the polls say at this moment. I mean, that, that if we get four more years of Trump. This will be the reason, right? That that that's my thesis, and I'm I'm doing whatever I can to to uh, uh, make that less likely. But it's um, it worries me. There are so many things that I want to follow up on in your answer, and I'm really torn right now because I have all these other questions that have to do with other topics. Well, I'm happy to go wherever you want to go. So that are really right. interesting to me yeah. that are part of your book. So I I'm torn in this moment. Um, okay. I'm going to I'm going to ask you a, a different question that follows up on what you were talking about with respect to four more years of Trump. And that's this. You one of your conversations in the book is with Timothy Snyder, who's a history professor at Yale, and he wrote a wonderful book called On Tyranny. And it's basically about how strong democracies, seemingly invincible democracies fail. And there's a really chilling part of the conversation where you read out loud part of his book. It's an op-ed in a German magazine that ran in 1933, and it argued that, quote, Mr. Hitler and his friends will not deprive Jews of their constitutional rights and close them in ghettos or murder them mm. because the rule of law would not allow it. The op-ed was written by, by German Jews. You say that the idea that the United States could be taken over by a similarly authoritarian regime, regime once seemed crazy to you, but now you think it's possible. And I'm wondering if you think it could be something as horrible as what I just described and what we know to be true about that part of history? And if not, what kind of a takeover you think might be possible in the next four years? Well, yeah, I don't know that I would say that Trump fits the mold of the, you know, the, the perfect, you know, fascist golem here. I mean, he's, he's more chaos than he is uh, an exemplar of any kind of ideology, right? He b believes in nothing that I can detect other than himself, right? So it's not, um, on some level, I almost feel like we've dodged a bullet. I mean, the, the, despite all of the harm he's, he's caused and, and might yet cause, what he's done is he's revealed this this weakness in our system. And I, I don't know how we correct for it, but I mean, it's it's absolutely clear that it's possible for someone to come to power in the United States now who is totally unfit for the office of the presidency and advertises his lack of fitness with every breath right and 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 still can he can win the approval of you know something like 40% of Americans who 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 gather around his his um his deficiencies into a kind of personality cult. I mean, it, it now functions, you know, what he said early on, which 
you know, everyone was aghast at, you know, turns out to be true. I mean, he, he, there's basically nothing he can do to lose a vote. You know, if you're talking about his core, it's, I mean, it, it literally, I think he could take his pants off at a press conference. And uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing that would, that, that would be so deranged that it couldn't just be part of the, the the theatrics that his base has come to love. Right. You know, there's no lie told there, there, no, there's no way in which he could be discordant with it, with himself. I mean, he can, he can literally repudiate the thing he said 30 seconds ago and no one cares about the lack of coherence in his own speech. And it can be on important topics. Right. Uh, so he's, um, we've proven that we can, we can have an utterly deranged person come to power and that our institutions are barely able to keep up with uh, all of the, the, the bad effects that, that follow upon that. Right. So it's just the idea that you can have normal rank and file Republicans who had, you would think, you know, reputations for, you know, professionalism and probity to maintain, right? I mean, the, everyone, you know, from from Mitch McConnell on down and people who had like real political careers and legacies, they must be care about on some level. They have been inducted into this personality cult. And, you know, the, their every moment uh, in the last few years has been spent trying to make, try, trying to pretend that the emperor has some clothes on, right? I mean, trying to pretend that this is anything like normal or healthy or acceptable. Um, and I mean, to have, you know, a president who's tweeting, you know, you know virtually, um, you know, actually dangerous, you know, uh, remarks against private citizens, right? You know, essentially doxing people or targeting people with his mob, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, that's one of a thousand infractions, you know, to, to hold, uh, that we could hold up against Obama's tan suit as, as an example of just how far we've come from normal, right? I mean, we have whole news cycles, uh, that can't absorb, uh, the latest thing Trump did because it's displaced 45 minutes later by the next crazy thing he does, right? Which would be, which would have sunk the career of any prior politician. So we know we're, our system is capable of being gamed by an actual maniac. Um, I think it's, it's, um, it would be much worse if we had a, a real, you know, evil genius gaming the system, right? He's not an evil genius. He's a, he's a, he's a morbidly selfish ignoramus right and um you know he's a he's basically a fake businessman you know and branding uh uh person who spent 14 years on a reality television show and got famous for being a a a, a very impressive you know fake businessman and was sold to the country that way and um it's it's amazing that we're here but I, I sh- so I, I share. I don't know. I don't know if Snyder is currently striking exactly the same notes he was when he when that book first came out. Uh, but uh, I mean, I take his his basic message that we're clearly at risk for tyranny, given how fully we've succumbed to to uh, the you know the power grab of you know one of the most mediocre people uh, I can name. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's just amazing how few talents he actually has and that he's gotten this far, right? He's, he has, he has the only talent he really has is a, a, a great awareness apparently of what 40% of America will accept and how he can play that, how he can leverage that, um, 
desire to just see a wrecking ball swing through the status quo um, and how he can cater to that and what he can get away with and what he and 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 how he can play a kind of asymmetric game of of information warfare with the other side because his opponents can never do what he does i mean if you just imagine you know you know any of his republican opponents early on or you know joe biden and kamala harris in their campaign now trying to play by his rules well they would be they would just destroy their reputations you know overnight right you just can't do that as a normal person he's figured out how to to behave like this monstrosity and to have people just tear up their scorecards like we can't even figure this out anymore let's just let's just enjoy the show and um so that's his talent and it's but it's amazing that we we have a system that has that has been so fully exploited by that well, I don't know if you agree with me about this, but I actually think that he and some of the people working for him have done things that are truly evil and to some degree irreparable. And I don't know if what you're saying is he's too crazy and incompetent and unintelligent to be as destructive a force as someone like Stalin or Hitler or Mao. And you're saying that that's, that's the difference, really, that he doesn't kind of have the vision or the capacity to do that kind of harm. But I do think that he's done a tremendous amount of harm and a tremendous amount of norm smashing and that he does have this love of dictators and authority figures and that he's said things like 12 more years and it really does make you wonder. So I guess, you know, one follow-up I have is whether you you feel like he is, is substantively different than other really, really evil dictators. And then the other question I have kind of related to that is this 40%, because his his numbers have never really moved. I mean, he's never really spent much of any time in the 30s, which is so interesting to me, because, for example, with George W. Bush, when the economy tanked, he was at one point in the teens. And so we have someone who is just, as you say, off the charts in almost every way, and yet just has this kind of solid 40% threshold and sometimes goes higher than that. And so that really makes me wonder, okay, this goes into your conversation with Robert Sapolsky, where you're talking about the nature of good and evil. And you say, okay, well, most human evil is really the result of bad ideas and not bad people, and that people do good things out of a righteous commitment to a terrible idea that creates needless suffering. Now, I don't think that is Donald Trump, but do you think that's a chunk of Donald Trump's supporters. I mean, how do you explain that number? Because I don't think that that number is entirely explicable by a cult of personality. I think some of it is explicable by that. And I think the politicians that you're talking about are kind of the mirror image of these cringing Hollywood celebrities with their hostage videos that they are just cynically protecting their own careers and so staying silent. But I'm wondering if you feel like the evils that are being perpetuated are the result of people attaching themselves to bad ideas or whether there's something just truly fundamentally wrong with most of the people that support Donald Trump? Well, I think Trump has done immense harm to our country. There's no, there's no question of that. I think he's he's harmed our politics and and he's our, our incapacity now to even speak rationally about real political problems and solve problems. The fact that, you know, that wearing a mask during a pandemic has been politicized. The fact that that he's broken every norm uh, we knew we had and many we didn't know we had. I mean, we it, it, one of the amazing things to discover here is that 
is that norms were doing so much to safeguard our our country. You know, it's like there's not a law in every spot. We need a law now to 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 stop a a person who has no democratic impulses from harming uh, our society. Uh, so much of that was done by norms, and he's violated he's violated every norm in sight. So you know, calling the press the enemy of the people, you know, if you're, as a U.S. president, or saying nothing good, but good things about a dictator like Putin, and saying virtually nothing but bad things about our actual allies. I mean, th- those are norms that that really matter. Um, he, you know, the, our stature in the world has has utterly eroded. Our, our, our soft power has utterly eroded. I mean, the idea that we could credibly stand for human rights. I mean, when is that going to happen again? It's going to take quite a reboot of our of our um, reputation uh, globally to to be able to do that. Um, so he's done a ton, a ton of harm, but it would be much worse if he were Stalin. You know, I mean that that would be. And so, so it's it's right to worry. It's 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 absolutely right to worry about the harms Trump has has committed and. The harms he may yet commit with given four more years, but it's also I think right to worry that we need to we need institutions strong enough to to make sure that nothing like a Stalin ever gets near uh, you know the ballot right because um, that would be much worse and um, as far as explaining his support yeah I mean I think there's this connects back with with the first part of our conversation it's it's wrong to say that everyone who supports Trump is racist or, you know, or much less a white supremacist, right? I mean, I think that's, that is, is, uh, you know, patently uh, quite obviously wrong, but um, it's also, and the flip side of that is also true. I mean, all, you know, all the racists support Trump. There's no question of that, right? So he's given a lot of comfort to the, the remaining racists in the country and, and the white supremacists and, and, uh, uh, and that's a terrible thing for a president to do, right? So that's a real wound in our society that the left is right to be complaining about. But it, Trump is such a, a super stimulus of everything we have good reason to be worried about, either just the, you know, the breakdown of trust in, in government and, and the amplification of right-wing you know, uh, craziness, you know, racism in particular, but also conspiracy thinking, the fact that he has nothing bad to say about a movement like QAnon, right? This is a, a you know, now a cult-like um, conspiracy theory alleging that that people like, uh, people being disproportionately on the left, certainly people like Hillary Clinton have been running a cannibalistic, you know, pedophile sex cult. Uh, and, um, you know, they're extracting the bodily essences of children to, uh, to uh, prolong their youth. I mean, it's just, it's, it's as insane as insane ever gets. And we have a president who says, why? Well, I hear they like me, you know, so they can't be all bad, right? Uh, it's, um, all of that's terrible. But the reality is, is that he is de- he's deranging the left too. So much of what I've just complained about on the left, the overreach, the dishonesty, the, 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 you know, the, the moral panic is, is what happens to the left when you elect a president like Trump. Right, he is this kind of super stimulus for leftist conspiracy thinking and leftist unreason and and inability to compromise and inability to 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 um, uh, honestly frame things. And um, so it's it's uh, the problem. Unfortunately, is now as much on the left as on the right 
and in some ways it's worse on the left because I mean the, the QAnon and the extreme right hasn't I mean that that is still the fringe right it's not like it, the white supremacists you know while I'm I'm worried about you know people who are taking their AR15s into public and and you know, if, you know I mean that's just that's a, a terrible situation we're in that we even have to think about this but uh, the extreme views of the left are far more mainstream than the extreme views of the right, right? And again, I, I attribute some of this to, to just the, the super stimulus of Trump. Um, and that's why, you know, we, you know, like everyone can recognize that Fox News, for the most part, isn't really news and Breitbart isn't really news. But when the, the New York Times begins to not quite be news, right, we have a real problem on our hands. And and that's, that's the... Um, so if anything, there's there's as much housekeeping to do on the left as on the right here. But a lot of the onus is on Trump for that, because people can't figure out how to respond to, to his outrages. And they are every bit as outrageous as as uh, the left thinks they are. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I agree that it's sort of a both sides pox on your houses kind of thing. Or I think that the New York Times and, and some of its excesses and and decisions about headlines and firing people, et cetera, puts it on the same page as Fox. I, I think we're talking about two entirely different different beings, and it's hard to even conceive of some of Fox News' programming as actual news. And it's a very interesting kind of crazy symbiotic relationship that Fox and Trump have, where Fox is kind of the shadow arm of, of Trump and influencing him. Well, I'll give you an example, though, because this is... The problem is we, this really is an asymmetric war, right? See, Fox News can make error after error after error. They never have to apologize, really, and their audience doesn't care. And I mean, this is, and Trump is the ultimate example of this. He never has to admit error, and even when the errors are, are undeniable within the span of a you know a single minute of video, um, whereas on the left. We hold ourselves, you know, the left, meaning kind of more mainstream left of center journalism here in academia, we hold ourselves to a different standard and we're right to hold ourselves to a different standard. I mean, the, the New York Times and the Atlantic and, and you know, these other you know real uh, organs of journalism have a non-Fox News standard of honesty and integrity and, and error correction. And it's important that they maintain them. So every violation there matters more, right? And so when you see um, just sheer partisan lies get spread, I mean, I'll give you one example. So like there's one of the, one of the, um, the most frequent charges against Trump is this, is referencing his response to Charlottesville, uh, which was totally inadequate and embarrassing and, and, and dangerous in many respects. But the, the, the blow that everyone wants to land against him is he said there were good people on both sides, right? And the, the 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 implication there is that he was talking about the white supremacists, right? It's like he was he was he was just soft peddling, the, the you know the, their just how atrocious it is to have people you know chanting with tiki torches saying Jews will not re replace us, and and he was ignoring all of that, and he was just saying that you know those are good people, right? And everyone uses this. New York Times journalists do it. Joe Biden cuts ads doing it. I mean, it's it is just at the highest level of democratic politics and mainstream journalism. It is understood that Trump said there are good people on both sides. Full stop. He's a monster, right? 
if you look at the press conference, you watch the video, it's, it's, it's there to be found on YouTube. He was very careful to say, I'm not talking about the white supremacists. That, that those have they have to be repudiated totally. Although I don't think he used the word repudiated. He might have said condemned, right? He said that clearly, right? And then he was clearly referencing other people. He who are they either there or not? I don't know. But he imagined there were other people who just were concerned about you know monu the wrong monuments being torn down or whatever. But he was he in his in his remarks made it very clear to say I'm not talking about the white supremacists. And then he goes on to say they're good, they're good people on both sides. Um, the fact that we can't extend because he is such a monster, right? He really is a monster, right? But we have to we have to be scrupulous even in how we deal with monsters, right? We have to we we we, we can't straw man even Trump, right? So this whole good good sides uh, people on good sides business is a straw manning of him, and everyone who supports him. And everyone who's on the cusp of supporting him knows it, right? In their echo chamber, they know this is a liberal media hoax, right? Perpetrated by the New York Times and the Atlantic and everyone else, right? And I mean, this is the kind of, I mean, honestly, this is in so deep now. I mean, we've doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on this so much that, you know, between now and the election, Kamala Harris or Joe Biden will, will almost certainly say it again, Right. And it completely discredits them in the mind of anyone who is possibly persuadable. Um, and again, it's 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 asymmetric because Trump can lie about everything all the time and no one cares. That's interesting. I mean, I there's so much more I want to say, but I am now I think I need to ask some questions from the audience. I will say one thing because I can't help myself, which is maybe he was referring to some other very fine people, but I guess for a lot of people, it's hard to imagine some very fine people on the other side who weren't in squarely the white supremacist camp. In other words, if you were on that side, it's sort of, you know, you're looking into a pretty rotten barrel at that point. And so that's what I would say to that while taking you at your word that the video does show a more nuanced, a nuanced statement. All nuanced statement and Trump in the same sense is really kind of mind blowing. Um, and you're right, he didn't use the word repudiate because that has a lot of syllables in it. So this is a question from the audience, which is, whose thinking do you most respect who takes positions or has beliefs that are different than yours? Well, that would depend on what topic. Um, I mean, that's, uh, that's hard to say generically. I mean, I'm always interested. I mean, so, I mean, one of the more thrilling experiences is to have someone who you you genuinely respect on you know topics uh, a b and c and then you hit topic d and they're diametrically opposed to you right and then you we, then you really want to get to the bottom of it because if this person is so solid over here what am i not seeing or what you know, what are they not it's like this is this is where we can really have a conversation so there there are people who have been on my podcast who definitely fit that description um I mean, David Deutsch is one of them. David Deutsch, the physicist at Oxford, who's who's um, you know one of the the fathers of of quantum computing, is um, a very interesting thinker across the board. He he has a very um, uh, he's in the book. Uh, actually, two of our conversations got got worked up for a chapter in the book, so he he's uh, well represented there. But he and I definitely are at odds on particular things, and it always surprises me. And and you know, I, I he's He's so smart and rigorous that it's, you know, I'm I I will pause you know several times before I 
I assure myself that I'm still right, you know, even, even though we disagree. Right. And so that, and that's a, that's a, a nice kind of postural correction that I think one wants to adopt more and more in one's life, just across the board, even when dealing with a random person on Twitter who, you know, whose bio you're unaware of. Well, I think maybe I'll reframe the question a little bit because I didn't get to ask you about religion and I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. So whose thinking do you most respect who takes positions or beliefs about religion that are different than yours? And I'm um, guessing that person is not Ben Affleck, speaking of celebrities, because you did get into a very famous debate with him in 2014 on Real Time with Bill Maher. And I encourage folks to look up the clip because it's pretty fascinating to watch for a number of reasons. And I actually recommend watching it with the sound off because what ends up happening in this debate about Islam is that Ben gets increasingly upset with the points that you're making and uh, gets very um, uh, caustic and perhaps a little bit vulgar with the way that he's attacking you personally. And then you maintain your very calm demeanor. You just never got upset at all. It's really interesting to watch with the sound off. You should. But anyway, that's an aside. I'm guessing you're not saying Ben Affleck. So who? No. um, Well, I guess so. One person doesn't come to mind, but there's a view that expressed by many people, you know, religious and not. I mean, just people who disagree with my, you know, rather uncompromising take on organized religion. Uh, There's a view that has been widely expressed, which is that with respect to, so so just to, to give some context for that answer, you know, I have said that, uh, and this is taboo, that, you know, all religions are not the same, right? And we, we pretend, it's, you know, it's politically correct to pretend, whether you're secular or you're, you're religious, that all religions are at bottom teaching the same thing. They teach it equally well. They're all about love and compassion and wisdom in the end. And, you know, all of the mayhem we see created under you know the, the the ages of one or another faith all of that is a is a misappropriation of this the, the, these core teachings that are just intrinsically benign and in fact not only benign but they're the, the greatest repository of wisdom humanity has ever produced right all of that is bullshit right like there's just not like there's, there's no truth to any of that right there's a lot of there are many good nuggets of wisdom in all of our religious traditions that's true there's some great writing in the bible there's some great injunctions. There's you know, there, and and so it is with every other canon. Um, but you really have to pick and choose. And and if you're going to honestly evaluate the central thrust of of the 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 doctrines of each one of these faiths, you have to admit that they're that they're mutually incompatible. They make different claims about the nature of reality and how to live within it. They certainly make different claims about the the provenance of specific books and the, the need to believe in, in the, the unique divinity or unique authority of specific saviors. And they, and they, they castigate the, you know, non-believers. I mean, they, they, most of them agree on just how unlucky you are to be a non-believer in the one true faith. Right. But they, they, they each, you know, mutually, mutually annihilate one another on that score. Um, and in particular, they're different in ways that are crucial for for you know conflict we see in our world today, right? And so you know at the at the point I was talking to on real time with to, to Ben, and you know long before that, after September 11th, um, I was focused on Islam 
rightly for being the unique source of this idea, this you know suicidal death cult uh, of jihadism, right? I mean, we, jihadism was an, an immense problem. It is still an immense problem, though it's just faded from our our, um, our radar for the moment. But it will certainly be back. Um, and uh, but when you look at what was happening in Iraq and and Syria under the Islamic State, that was an expression that was a all too plausible expression of the core beliefs of Islam, and not at all a plausible expression of the core beliefs of Anglicanism or Mormonism or Scientology or any other you know you know religion or you know cult uh, of faith. Um, so, which is to say that. You can find the scriptural justification for throwing homosexuals off of rooftops, right? You can find the scriptural justification for stoning people to death for adultery, um, uh, and you can find it in Leviticus and 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 Deuteronomy too. But you can also find the theological reasons why Jews and Christians no longer practice that, uh, if in fact they ever did. So, again, the, the imperative here is to honestly grapple with the facts and the reasons, and and not be not be misled by the the blandishments of you know political correctness and and uh, happy talk on on these topics um but many people have argued against this you know this unfairly uncomprom- un- uncompromising view i just presented by saying listen the the only way the only path to moderation really for for you know islam in particular here uh, is to not say any of the things you just said really and to just let modernity do its work and in particular let a a culture like the US that has this this overweening commitment to respecting faith you know quite a, quite distinct from what happens in western europe where you know you have a, a secular um imperative which really which which pushes you know faith community into the almost ghettoizes it in the West, we really celebrate. In, in, in America, we really celebrate faith. You know, we have a, a majority of Americans saying that it's the most important thing in their lives, and that's why Islam is as moderate as it is in the U.S. Right? It's not because the, you know the, you have rationalists like me successfully criticizing it and getting it to, to moderate itself. It's that it's that you have evangelical Christians and other, and you know Bible thumpers of every sort saying. You know, you can you should be thumping your Quran to your heart's content uh, because religion is the most important thing in the world. And in America, we understand that. Right. Um, And that's that's just an empirical question. I mean, that's a sociological question. Is it, in fact, true that there was there was more jihadist radicalism in a country like the UK or Denmark or or Holland than there was in the US because of the differing attitude toward religion? Uh, whereas I've been arguing that we should be much more like Western Europe in our attitude toward religion. Um, now I happen to th- I'm not I'm not sure that's the case, but there are many very smart people who have come back you know hard against me saying you're, you're wrong. And it's you know we the silver lining of our you know religiosity in America is that it has made it has integrated the Muslim community much more into America, and that is the path toward toward you know basic sanity uh, for us. Um, and that's again. Um, we don't know who's right at the moment. So, This is another question from an audience member. And the question is, do you think that conservatives understand liberals better or vice versa? I guess, generally speaking. 
You know, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it in those terms, but there there is there is an asymmetry there, which uh, I think could be summarized that way. I mean, so so I'll tell you how I experience it. I experience because I'm I'm liberal across the board. I mean, I mean, it's you know, it's not that the the left might not be outraged by that claim, but the truth is, I mean, if you look at the, the kind of canonical social attitudes you need to have to be liberal, I am, I am just, I, I check all those boxes, you know? So I think wealth inequality is an immense problem and we should do a lot of redistribution. Um, I think, you know, obviously I want um, uh, respect for, you know, political equality across the boards. And, you know, it's, there's never been a time where I was not in favor of gay marriage, you know, I mean, it's, it's like all, all of that is, is where I live politically, but, when I have to deal, when I'm when I'm dealing with criticism from the right and left of any view I take, it is it is far more common for me to deal with dishonesty and bad faith coming from the left than from the right, right. So very often I I I, I meet disagreement from conservatives, right? People who think abortion should be illegal in you know in any trimester and for any reason, right? Say and so we we disagree radically about abortion. Um, there's no um, need for th- that person who's very far to the right of me politically to to misrepresent my views before engaging with them, right? And and so rather off. So whether it's abortion or whether it's my, you know my take a, a, about religion, um, so often I'm getting a con- I'm seeing a conservative honestly interact with my views, and then we just disagree about facts or arguments or whatever. Whereas on the left. I'm getting an utterly bad faith, uh, seemingly calculated misrepresentation of my view. I mean, someone, someone basically pretending to be a mind reader, you know, it's like, like you say you don't believe X, but, but I'm going to say you believe X and that's the view I'm going to attribute to you, right? That is so common on the left right now. And it's so crazy making uh, that uh, it accounts for why so many people, so many people in my position of being on the left in all things but wokeness spend a lot of time criticizing the left now, um, you know, every bit as much time as we spend criticizing Trump. Um, so that, if, you, if that's sort of the flip side of this, of the answer to this question. I mean, there is a, you know, I, I often have the experience of being clearly understood by conservatives and then disagreed with where, and, and I can see that, you know, people on the left are, I mean, if they don't understand me, they really don't understand conservatives, right? If they're, if they're willing to attribute fictional positions to me and demonize me, they're absolutely doing that to conservatives. And so, yeah, it's there's there's something to that disparity. So you get, sorry, so you get a tiny, tiny bit of extra time to answer the Commonwealth Club last question. You're getting mm-hmm. about 90 seconds instead of 60. So what is your 85-second idea to change the world? Well, yeah, as would come as no surprise, it relates to much of what we've been talking about. It really is having as uh, our default position, um, one, an understanding that conversation is our our only tool to persuade other people and change their behavior, right? Only tools short short of force, right? Or force of numbers, right? Uh, So 
conversation has to work in the end. We have to be able to talk to people. I mean, the people we can't talk to, can't talk to, we have to find some way to, to physically control, right? I mean, that, that when, when, th- when, when the stakes are sufficiently high. Um, so once you see that that is the imperative, you know, socially, politically, then the, 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 the norms of conversation we've been talking about have to be considered sacred, right? I mean, you have, you have intellectual honesty is a sacred principle, right? It, 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 that has to be your religion, right? Being honest with yourself and with other people, right? That, that, that it's an ethical imperative. It's the only rail we can ride toward a future in which we can collaborate with one another in an open-ended way. I mean, it's the, it's the only thing that guarantees your capacity to be honest and honestly grapple with facts and the and and, and the and the consequences of arguments is the only thing that guarantees that that we can that no matter how far we start out from one another on a given position that our 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 worldviews can ultimately cohere if we just continue the conversation long enough if i just get you the facts you need to be persuaded right but once you de- once you decide to not honor those rules once you say well listen i'm just going to i'm just going to play by the rules that 2 plus 2 equals 5 because it works for me right that's just that is just a a um that is what causes society to unravel even though we we don't you know we, we don't tend to think about it that way right I and mean, that is what that is the precursor to people coming into the streets and burning down buildings right and so we have to uh we have to honor uh the the norms of civil conversation explicitly more and more uh, now and and we especially have to do it when people are showing a tendency to to uh, you know, live out this unraveling, right? When people are, are, are showing that they're bad at doing this, I and mean, we have to double down on this. So, um, yeah, that's uh, the norms of civil, intellectually honest conversation. That is my generic solve for basically everything that ails us. Well, I think that is a skill that you excel at, and it's been really lovely to be in conversation with you, Sam Harris. Oh, thank you, Laura. Thank you. So. Sam's book, Making Sense, Conversations on Consciousness, Morality, and the Future of Humanity is available wherever books are sold. So make sure that you get one. And we also want to thank all of you, our audience, for watching and supporting us live. I am Lara Bazelon, and thank you to everyone. And please stay safe. And thank you, especially Sam Harrison.